Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode. Our guest this week will be five-time NTT IndyCar Series champion Scott Dixon. We will be recording that tomorrow on Wednesday. I am capturing this on a Tuesday afternoon, starting here at about 4.08 p.m. Tuesday in California. I want to say thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for being such big supporters of us. Also, TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. I want to say thank you to you all as well for sending in your questions. My voice is still in rough shape, and I'm not sure when that's going to change. So I apologize if it is going to suck more than usual during this episode. would also mention that if you are just here for the listener Q&A, would strongly urge you to take a look at the episode description and towards the very bottom, I will have included the timestamp for when the Q&A starts, which is also meant to be a polite way of saying, for those who don't want to hear about life, uh, about anything that isn't involving racing and are just here for the escape, that is the magic ticket to avoid everything that we're about to get into because... We're about to get into it. So I have had nothing to say about the killing of George Floyd on Monday, May 25th. It's not by mistake. My opinion is meaningless on this, something I am (laughs) always aware of. But I did have someone today, actually I had two different people. I had one person politely call me out asking why I haven't made a statement or haven't commented or said anything. Just say that since this was specific to me and specific to IndyCar as well, we'll share that I'm old enough to where I could not possibly give you the number of how many George Floyds have been killed through racist or brutalistic actions by whether it is law enforcement or just despicable human beings with hate and division in their heart. So I can share that somewhere in my teens, I seem to recall I was maybe somewhere between 13 and 15, which would have been between 1980. 1983, 1984-85, somewhere in there, I learned about Emmett Till. And growing up as a white kid in a white household, granted, was raised in a town that was fairly diverse, and I was actually in the minority in a number of my classes throughout the years. Uh, As a sandy-haired blonde kid, in a room filled mostly with kids with black hair, be it African-American, be it Asian, be it Latino. Um, Nonetheless, despite growing up in a pretty cool melting pot-ish environment, uh, I still also grew up in a household where we were just kind of a normal white family. And it took until I might have been just reading through an encyclopedia learned of Emmett Till's murder in the 1950s 
And for those who don't know about Mr. Till, uh, well worth searching and reading. Uh, That I recall somewhere between the age of 13 and 15 in my life. I, I consider that to be a birthday where I learned about how folks of color, people of color in the United States, could be killed by people who look like me just for being people who look like African Americans, Latinos, etc. That was the first time I grasped the, oh, my Lord. And that was my experience. And it was the ethnic awakening of what this could be like in our country. And I consider myself fortunate to have cracked open that encyclopedia. Uh, I don't seem to recall it being in a history book so much that I read in school, but whatever it was, I just remember that transforming my views of, oh, I need to learn more and be aware. And as I got a little bit older, the concept and understanding of needing to be an ally, of needing to be a brother to folks of color who go through hell just for being people of color, that dawned on me a couple of years later probably. Uh, I know one African-American friend in school took me to school on that topic as well from his experiences in a way that went beyond uh, what I would have known just fumbling through life. So these are some of the things I've been fortunate, truly fortunate to have happen early-ish in my life that have flavored my life. I've also, by choices of love and attraction, spent all of my life since I was 20 20 or 21 with women of color. And living with families of color and or having, in the case of my wife and I, who've been together now for 18 years, my mother-in-law, my brothers-in-law, sisters-in-law, their children, that is my family. Some of you might know I don't, I no longer have family. Parents are deceased, don't have any brothers or sisters. I have a half-sister I lost track of 30-plus years ago. But my wife and her family, they are my family. These are the very same folks who, just like Mr. Floyd, could be killed at any point in time for jogging down the street coming out of a convenience store, driving, doing anything. And so this is not some detached reality. This is not a thing that I read in an encyclopedia. 
None of what I'm saying is, oh, woe is me. Not at all. Again, I've got it easy, man. But I can just share that the why haven't you said anything on social media angle. This isn't new to me. I know this isn't new to a lot of people. And at least for the life I've lived, typing words into the social media platform of whatever, that's not action. Those are just words, platitudes. For me. For those who are having their birthdays as a result of Mr. Floyd's death, their social activism and awakening started with this moment. Posting support and messages and statements on social media is a great first step. It's a natural thing, and I'm really, truly proud of many people that I know directly or just know through whether it's honestly through the podcast or through my work in the interactions that we have on social media, I'm proud of so many of you who have been heartbroken, alarmed, saddened, all kinds of things in reaction to witnessing Mr. Floyd's murder by police on Monday, May 25th. So very proud of the Joseph Newgardens and Graham Rahals, since this is an IndyCar show, Sage Karams, Robert Wickens, Jer Hildebrand, who, although I can't recall seeing them saying anything about any other murders of people of color, again, everyone's birth date is different. Feels like there's a lot of folks in our collective world, drivers, fans alike, who have who are sharing the same birthday of awakening and I applaud you I support you I thank you because it just makes the world better and here's the thing I'm going to add to this which might not be so popular and it's the word but but a tweet post a black image and throwing up a hashtag that doesn't save the next black man or black woman, Latino man or Latino woman, etc., from being killed through police brutality or racist acts. The job is not done with a tweet. One of our show's frequent listeners, frequent contributors, someone who I've come to appreciate heavily, Ryan Terpstra, replied to the IndyCar statement that I shared said, silence enables things to stay the way they are. A statement is necessary. I don't necessarily ride with you on this one, Ryan. Silence does not enable things to stay the way they are. Inaction allows things to remain unchanged. Saying something does not equate to doing something. Words without action go nowhere. And so the thing that I hope, the thing that I truly, truly hope, 
piggybacks off of what I have seen written by a number of African-American men and women on social media in recent days. And it is in reaction to the significant number of folks who look like me joining in in many instances for the first time in expressing support and solidarity with people of color. And the statements have all said more or less the same thing. I hope you are still here a month from now. That's where my everything is coming from. Posting something on social media right now, it feels great. It feels inclusive. It feels like something significant is being done. Provided more follows it, provided volunteering with an organization that will help. If it is donating money, the ACLU, for example, the American Civil Liberties Union, that is a pretty powerful thing. If you are willing to take a first step and for the first time, likely in reaction to Mr. Floyd's murder, stand up on social media and call it out and say it can no longer be the case and then follow that with hashtag Blackout Tuesday. Great. And if it stops there, wasting time. This is no different than any fad or craze. Here, everybody do the so-and-so dance. Everyone do the bottle cap karate kick. Everyone do pour ice on top of your head. Everyone do some sort of fad that hits social media for a week or two, and then we all completely forget about That's the thing that I am hopeful is not the case here for so many that I have seen in our little world speak up and speak out for the first time. And so, Ryan in particular, I appreciate you. I understand what you are saying. I'm not saying that writing something on the Internet has no value or meaning, but if it's an isolated event and it is not met with real, true, how can I get involved? How can I support my brothers and sisters of color? How can I help remove, reduce, improve police brutality from our world, racism from our world? What can I do? Let me put down my phone. Turn off my phone. And think of things I can do in the real world to affect change. Where can I go? What can I do? That's where I truly hope things go. And so the comments that I've seen and heard from folks of color in my life who have called, who have pulled me aside, who have vented, who have said a number of things over the past week to week and a half. 
it all comes back to come stand with us. Be with us. Help us be one. If it's just typing words onto the internet, we fail. This goes nowhere. I don't know what any individual might be motivated to do from a individual action standpoint. Volunteering at places, donating, contributing services. There's a lot of things that can be done to improve the lives of people of color. There are a lot of things that can be done to improve the state in which people of color are at risk. I really hope a month from now this isn't something where zero physical action has followed. Also want to be really clear in saying it's not like I am some pariah who is just dedicated his whole life to nothing but action. No. It's not the case. Can say truthfully I've been pretty consistent for a long time in volunteering and donating and trying to help and it's because people of color are not external they are my family my wife and i just to share a very direct anecdote quickly before we get moving on to your questions we deal with on average about one no doubt about it damn what is wrong with this world type racist encounter per week about one a week keep in mind we are doing a lot of sheltering at home as i hear another helicopter go by with the protests uh being monitored um we don't go out as much nearly as much as we did but i can just it's like clockwork someone is going to clutch their belongings after looking over and being visibly startled at seeing a brown-skinned woman all of a sudden it is words said it is all manner of you could call them microaggressions but they're just racist things actions and behaviors where it takes a lot of self-restraint to not react and at times often the moments i'm most proud because i'm not always seeing what my wife is seeing it will be her out loud and blunt reaction and calling out the racist man or racist woman who has done something said something or reacted in some way towards her that is not being lavished in my direction so I wish I could say that things like what Mr. Floyd and others, whether it is being targeted, harassed, or even as far as killed, is some sort of rarity that, oh man, this stuff almost never happens. I wish I could tell you from experience, living in a family where I am the minority... I'm the only one who looks like me in my family. Uh, I wish I could say that, boy, this just almost never happens. 
It's just not the case. So please continue to do whatever it is you are motivated to do. I would just beg of you, if you have come far enough to post your first thing denouncing sickness and offering to stand virtually in support, please, please look for ways to add to that with real-world action because that is where we do actually make things change. There are far more folks who look like me in this country than the people of color who are at the greatest risk. And the more folks who look like me continue to stand virtually and in the real world and to volunteer and to donate and to take action, the more numbers we put up so that our brothers and sisters of color are not isolated and having to continually deal with centuries of this nonsense by and large on their own that's where real real hope starts to set in tell you though the amount of tears and exhaustion and exasperation just that i witness in my own home in reaction to this the being overwhelmed the running out of tears having no more screams to offer at learning about this woman that man this boy this man this woman this child this senior citizen this 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 i just really hope that when we do get to get back to racing and things get back to normal since times certainly don't feel particularly normal with riots and protests and lootings and citizens being shot, police officers being shot, bullets going both ways. <sighs> Coronavirus? Man, that's an easy virus to lick. The most devastating virus? That's the one that's been here for more than 400 years. And I am going to pray tonight that a month from now, on July 2nd, we can look back and say, boy, and all the amazing things we heard about that folks did to try and genuinely improve this disgusting sickness and virus that has been with us for far longer than any of us have been alive. We can maybe, maybe start to suppress this thing, flatten the curve of racism and police brutality. Imagine that. Imagine that. All right, this is our stamp. We are getting started with your Q&A. One question, and I'm going to steal it a little bit because there's a little update that I just decided, you know, this wasn't worthy of writing a story because it's a non-issue. But I figured I'd save it here because it took me two days to finally get uh, rang Mark Miles uh, and finally spoke with him today and said, hey, just a question. Has there been any discussion within the series or that you've heard from Texas Motor Speedway to consider postponing the race on Saturday night due to this nationwide uprising? 
and not because there's a fear that there's going to be a protest and rioting uh, at the gates at Texas Motor Speedway. Not that, but just a, boy, uh, we seem to be going through something really significant and big and scary possibly as well with fires continuing to burn from coast to coast. Is it the right time for IndyCar to go to Texas and go round and round in circles for amusement's sake at a time when it feels like something bigger and more important should be taking precedent and left in the spotlight. Uh, And his answer was, no, that has not been discussed. We have not heard concerns about it from drivers or Texas Motor Speedway. So uh, no changes there. The other thing I mentioned to Mark which I said this is something that might also be a consideration because his answer was based strictly on what others had or had not said to them compared to them sitting down to ponder it and act on their own. I said keep in mind that IndyCar has teams based in six states and in some of those cities where IndyCar drivers, team owners, crew, you name it, happen to live, there are indeed protests going on. They might not all, again, be at the doorstep of where some folks live, but I just share from our experience, we live in an area where, of all the places to protest, our little city of Fremont, I'd put at the bottom and there's one that it has happened, one that's currently happening while I'm recording this, and another one that I know that's scheduled. Um, point being, what hasn't happened today doesn't mean it might not happen tomorrow. And I am not entirely sure if every crew member, the hundreds and hundreds of people that are needed to put on an IndyCar race are going to want to leave their wives, girlfriends, or children, or husbands to go down to Texas and play race car, knowing that with the personnel restriction, possibly some other travel-related restrictions depending on where folks are, curfews, etc. By and large, each crew member cannot take their family with them just saying, in the middle of what we are seeing on television every day, seemingly in just about every place, and even the places you'd never expect that are looting, trashing, lighting on fire, and shooting, is this something where IndyCar should, you know, at least take a poll and ask, hey, are you good with leaving your family while all this is still going on? And so Mark said, you know, well, it's certainly something we will discuss. I'll get back to you if there are any changes. Don't anticipate it, but uh, we will be going forward as planned. So just share that with you. Nothing has changed, but I do find it a bit interesting that, not interesting. I'm not exactly sure how IndyCar looks. NASCAR also has a race planned for Sunday at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Atlanta being one of a handful of African-American hubs in the country. Um, Again, I know that folks like their racing and want things to be distracted by. 
I just figure if we just shut the country down for a couple months due to concerns of a virus, real concerns, but concerns over a virus, uh, I would have at least thought there would have been more in-depth consideration on this topic. Uh, I was not expecting to raise this idea to have my question bring this concept to light. So maybe I'm totally out in left field and there's no reason and I've wasted my time and Mark's time in asking it. That's incredibly possible. But at least from where I sit, it's a surprise this wasn't already considered and teams and personnel hadn't been polled. But the answer, according to Mark, is we are going forward, period. All right, we're going to dive into your questions. And this goes to Daniel Kincaid first. Why did Firestone implement a very short tire stint limit before they even turned a wheel in Texas? Why not wait and see if maybe they can make the window bigger after practice? Scott Dixon seems to be a big seemed to be a big fan of the tire limit, at least. He said, "Please note the sarcasm." Todd Rose also adds, "Will there be any changes to the 35 lap tire stint limit at Texas? If officials like what they see, tire wear wise in practice and qualifying, uh, or if they don't like what they see?" Uh, well, Daniel and Todd, main thing I would take from this is. The making it up on the fly during a one-day event that has a fairly compressed schedule is not how one should run a professional motor racing event. So the only changes I would foresee, and this is something that has absolutely taken place at Texas before, is if there is unexpected wear uh, if we have blistering, some other unexpectedly negative reaction that then causes either a change in tires, different compound, a lap limit modification, unless things get worse, I don't foresee any changes being called for. Why? Other than that's not how you hold a professional motor race. Other answer is you need to give teams something to work from. And so that is both race strategy, but that's also chassis set up. So we're talking about having 80 minutes, 8-0, for the entire field to run in practice before they go into qualifying. So keep in mind we have teams that while they did test last in March... And some throughout the offseason, even in March, did get to Texas to turn some laps there. We are going to be competing in a different environment, different ambient temperature, different humidity, different everything than the last time there. We only have apportioned eight zero minutes for it in the light of day at just after noontime is when this starts. So fairly hot time of day and then we go racing at night where it is obviously cooler there's already a lot of variables of teams having to start their season on a big somewhat frightening oval 
having to work with tires that were not the first choice. Uh, these are the tires Firestone's been able to bring, as I've been told from race engineers. These are the tires that basically were not chosen last year of the two options that they had uh, to consider for Texas. You will just say an A and a B um, option. Uh, they went with the A last year, and these were the leftover Bs. And it's not like Firestone is just using old tires for the sake of it. Uh, being shut down as well production-wise did not afford them the time or opportunity to manufacture new tires for Texas. So this is really uh, what they've had in inventory to be able to use. So Daniel and Todd, we have a situation where 80 minutes, heat of the day, conditions that are not like they're going to be at night you need to be able to give teams and drivers something to work from some sort of framework that says okay if we have to pit every 35 laps to change tires then we need to work on setups that work optimally in a 35 lap span if they go and go through the 80 minutes of practice and there is a determination that is, oh, hey, all right, now you can run 50 laps, or now you can run 20 laps. We're talking about cars that are going through qualifying, and there is no more time on the schedule to adjust, to try and tune the car to work best under a 20-lap or 50-lap limit. So, again, unless there's something unexpectedly negative that happens which would necessitate some sort of adjustment as we've seen in the past. You have to give teams and drivers something to work towards setup wise so that they at least have a benchmark to adjust from once they get into the race. If that target's just moving all over the place lap limit wise, I would say that that could actually be negligent, if not a little bit dangerous knowing that we're going to be going racing at night. There are going to be guesses made on the setup changes to adapt to running in cooler conditions. And if you also are changing the expected peak of the car handling during those stints, because the stint length has changed, um, I'd veto that in a heartbeat. Let's go to, boy, a topic you want to talk about tugging at some heartstrings here uh we're talking about indie lights and the 2020 season being canceled uh heard about this over the weekend and i don't know if i was better at my job i probably would have dropped everything and chased it but i just didn't want to uh, so got one two four questions here derus lauren reddit says there's a lot to unpack on this one, so I'll just say it. Indy Lights, discuss. Our pal Cody Oakwood says, now that the Indy Lights season has been canceled, could any of those teams use their budgets and sponsorship dollars to run a car at Indy or another Indy car race? Also asks, could one of the bigger teams lease them one of their backup cars for a one-off run somewhere? Well, Cody, keeping in mind that the unspent money this year on Indy Lights 
could indeed be used to run at the 500, but would not necessarily mean that that budget, same amount of money would just appear for next year. Um, you're going to have folks who are trying to, I would imagine, in some cases, hold on to it for Indie Lights 2021, or, as I know, to also be an option, some drivers looking to use some of that money to, I'd say IMSA's probably the place where most are looking to go do some sports car stuff. Maybe in GT Daytona, the Pro-Am class there, LMP2, you have 10 drivers who really do not want to be sitting idle this year. And that's another thing to, uh, to consider. Of you know, Here's a group of talented young drivers wanting to become the next generation of IndyCar drivers, and they've had their year canceled. So that's a year of development, that's a year of growth, a year of maturation, right? I raced, I made mistakes, I shut the door when I shouldn't have, and I learned from it. Um, I learned more about chassis setup, I better developed my interpersonal relationship and relationship building skills with my crew and mechanics and engineer and all the things. I just uh, think of Indy Lights as one senior year in, I don't know, whether you want to call it high school or even college. It's that senior year where, boy you probably make more growth in cementing who you are and what you're going to become than in any of the previous years of school. And to think that while there will be physical aging with uh, the Indy Lights drivers, we're not exactly sure what's going to happen on the developmental and educational growth. So that's something for sure to think about here, Cody. So I'd say the, hey, we got money to burn. Where can we go burn it? I don't know if that's going to be the mindset of all the drivers. I know that they want to race somewhere, but I know that there's probably going to be a protective mindset applied to that budget. Keep in mind as well, on the team side, um, you have a lot of teams, I'm sorry, not a lot of teams, a lot of entries, 10, uh, but you've got a, you know, a number of folks whose livelihood is centered upon turning wrenches and engineering and driving trucks and doing all these things, supporting Indy Lights teams. What happens to them? Um, speaking of two days of trying to get a hold of um, now, two days into trying to get hold of Andretti Autosport uh, VP, J.F. Thorman, who's really the main, you know, he is the engine behind their Indy Lights program, to ask that question, what do you do? Um, so, yeah. The other question you have here, Cody, could one of the bigger teams lease them backup cars for a one-off run somewhere? If there's an option, I would say that would be the only one that really jumps out. Um you know, something for, say, the Indy 500, uh, already looking at both Chevy and Honda being at or close to at their supply limits with the folks that we know before the Indy Light season was canceled. So 
a we don't really have many if any teams with cars ready to lease and you know could there be one lease made available from a chevy or honda and i mean one between the two of them maybe but that's about it so the 500 i don't think is really going to be much of an option and if it is indycar would probably want it to be one of the uh one of the young veterans of the series and by that i mean someone with what two years in toby Sowery and robert mcginnis and then there's santi arusia who's what i think starting his fourth year so i think that would be about the only thing they might consider um let's go to joshua ponce hey josh he says marshall with the cancellation of the light season let me take another big sip of water what implication does this bring to sponsors in the series itself what happens to the scholarship money that is awarded to the champion driver does it get rolled over the next season or would it be split into equal parts among the teams i don't know um again i'm recording this on a tuesday i haven't made the time to reach out to anderson promotions uh, and find out i would assume that kyle kirkwood's graduation prize getting men to indy lights is not going anywhere i mean he earned it plus indycar uh and anderson promotions are the ones that pay for that so i'd have a hard time seeing uh, kyle get shafted and the money go elsewhere or distributed um i mean i'll confirm that but i'd be very surprised uh as for the implications to the sponsors and series itself luckily there aren't many in the way of like truly independent sponsors you know hey we're coming in sponsoring a lights car because we want advertising value that's not so much the case it's family money friends of the family and their sponsors it could be benevolent folks who are affiliated with the team bob stellerect for example stands out as one who's been a you know, amazing supporter of a number of Andretti Autosport lights drivers. So, you know, uh, it, it's probably a greater situation, Josh, of asking the sponsors to just remain committed getting through this. As for what happens to the series itself, the thing I've been hearing, and I haven't written about it, and I'm not even sure if I should mention it because I just haven't had a chance to chase it yet, but. Uh, the thing I continue to hear is somewhere on a list of important things to get done in the near future. It's IndyCar taking greater involvement in the series and getting its teams more involved in the series. Right now we have one team, Andretti Autosport, IndyCar team, that has a presence in Indy Lights. Uh, yeah, and I mean a direct, it's our team, not, oh, hey, they provide a little bit of technical support, this team here, I mean, I'm talking real, <laughs> this is us, these are our people. Um, that's what I've heard, and I would say, Josh, that if Indy Lights is going to return next year, that's going to need to happen. There's going to have to be some sort of greater involvement, a backstop of sorts, financial, but also engagement-wise. Uh, with teams really come coming from on high at IndyCar. So that's my super, super, super hope. Uh, we're going to close on the Indy Lights questions from Matt Anderson. Says, Marshall, with a cancellation of the Indy Lights season this year and only single-digit entries anticipated as it was, I believe the number was 10, um, do you think 
going to a single provider, a ride-and-drive series, similar to how the old Barber Dodge Pro Series was, would be a more practical and cost-effective solution long-term going forward, since a lot of teams will be struggling to stay in business after this year anyways. Yeah, interesting one, Matt. I hadn't, I'd never considered that uh, for Indy Lights. If it were to happen, we would definitely put <laughs> basically all the teams out of business. Uh, you know, could there be a scenario where teams come in and former teams come in and support, I guess? Um, I hear what you're saying. Indy Lights numbers have been low for too long. We've had more teams leave than come in of late. Uh, now we're canceling the entire season. Would it be easier, simpler to go, since we already have a spec car, to go to just uh, truly, you know, just one provider? Uh, I'm sure you could save money there for sure. I'm sure there's a lot of efficiencies that could be found. I'm just always going to struggle to be the guy that says, yeah, let's kill small businesses um, to go spec the dollarification of everything. I already wrote about that last week about photographers and IndyCar trying to, to dollarify that aspect, take full control. Uh, the thing that I hope provided what I've heard about IndyCar that I mentioned, Matt, with uh, Josh's question. I hope, if it's accurate, the motivation behind IndyCar wanting to step back in, knowing that they did, uh, they were once in full control of uh, Indy Lights, and that's been the case in the past as well with Champ Car and so on, but I would hope that part of the motivation, if not most of the motivation, for IndyCar to get directly involved help revitalize the series, help forge links from IndyCar teams to Indy Lights teams, if not get IndyCar teams to create new Indy Lights teams. I would hope the motivation would be, Matt, the frickin' entry list in IndyCar. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's ridiculous right now. And I, I do fully understand that not all these drivers are full byproducts or partial byproducts of the Indy Lights series in the last couple of years. But, man, the numbers are ridiculous, right? You look at the two best that we have right now of recent byproducts, that being Colton Herta and Felix Rosenquist. You know, Felix did, what, eight races for Bellardi in 2016. So, you know half-ish season or so, won three races, but he came over, and because he did that half-season, absolutely caught the attention of multiple teams. We have seen what Pato Award has done. Look at where he's standing today as the new leader of Aero McLaren SP. Spam! Look at Colton, who's looking like the kid who's going to be in charge at Andretti Autosport by the end of the year, if not next year. Look at Renus VK, who we expect to be an absolute beast in his rookie IndyCar season. We could say Alex Pelot. Again, we certainly never been in Indy Lights, but we do know, again, young talent 
the type of place where that young talent comes from being quite often indie lights oliver askew your reigning champion we expect big big things from him and i don't need to go through the whole list do i of everyone else that has come into the series as an indie lights champion or or close to from tony Kanon to scott dixon yada 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 james hinchcliffe I mean, we can just run down the list. But I think the big catalyst here, Matt, that I hope is IndyCar. Roger Penske saying, hey, man, there's a changing of the guard going on. Almost half of our full-time drivers are very recent graduates of Indy Lights or similar somewhere in the world. We really need to continue cultivating this talent, and we can't let the place they so often come from wither and die. So I'd hope the recognition of how the best currently in IndyCar and the finest young prospects coming up are ones that absolutely uh, benefit from being in Indy Lights first. So that's my, my crazy, crazy, crazy hope here. Um, let's go to Justin Stinson. As I know this is looking entirely too far into the future, but my question remains. Regarding the Indy 500, let's say they only allow 50% of the fans in the stands and nothing in the infield. How do they determine which 50% of the 200,000 tickets get to attend? Would it be based on longevity repeat ticket holders, based on the seating section, random lottery draw? The same issue could plague the double billing on July 4th uh, with NASCAR. He says... Uh, T's and P's for you and the better half as well. Holy cow, Justin, that's amazing. We have shortened the most trivial statement in the human language, thoughts and prayers, to just the first letter of each word, T and P. Not key and peel, but T's and P's for you. Oh, that's amazing. That is amazing, Justin. Ah, Lord. So... I'll repeat what I've been told by Mr. Miles in the not-too-distant past, which is there's no way we would run the Indy 500 without fans. So I'll take that on face value. And that's not because, again, I'm not hesitating because I doubt him. It's just, as you mentioned, we're looking pretty far into the future, and who knows what's going to change. Uh, we hope there's no second wave of outbreaks, but again, I, I don't know. Nobody knows. So, yeah. The If they have to pick and choose, if they, by chance, allow 50% instead of 100%, how? Oh, man. I don't know how they would do that. It would be brutal because you're just going to piss people. The only thing you're going to do is enrage people. And then do those people not come back? I mean, that's, that's the big fear. If I had to do it, I probably would go with the legacy angle first. Who's been doing this the longest? Who has invested the most in us and this event? That doesn't mean the folks who want to buy a ticket for the first time are less valuable people, but it does mean that for the family that's been to the last 57, um, boy, there is absolute value i would say in rewarding uh that dedication so yeah because what i 
know for sure would happen is if it was just a blind lottery type thing and the family that's you know bought 10 tickets and attended with 10 people for the last 57 years don't get drawn i mean they're never coming back it's going to be you know my friend davy first and all the other local tv reporter host types uh they're going to need like five different digital channels to try and contain all the interviews and complaints that come in so i'm sure there's a contingency plan upon contingency plans justin as to how they might handle something like this the next time i connect with doug bowles i'll see if he'll tell me i do know that at least in the conversation i had with mr miles you know uh not too long after the shutdown started um he never mentioned portions of fans or whatever else it seemed to be a you know we're gonna if we're gonna do the indy 500 it's gonna be done normally but state regulation and a variety of other regulations could very well impact that i boy i i oh i would hate to see this have to happen in any kind of x percentage can come in and play type routine justin because that would be brutal but i'll see if i can get an answer out of you um let's go to our pal joe secchi 100 from italy who sent this before indycar happened to post its statement today says i hope everything is fine at home so do you think indycar should say or do anything in support of the black lives matters movement this is a series in motorsports in general is mostly followed by conservative middle-aged white men and i'm sure a loud part of them would not support this stance also adds hashtag me personally i think indycar should definitely act in any meaningful way and if any fan has something to say they can politely write their opinion on a piece of paper wrap it moisten it with some water and stick it up there bleeps look at that we got fiery stuff here uh Josecki closes by saying i wish all the best to all the black people minorities and good people in general listening to the podcast well thanks Josecki. i wish the best to everybody listening men women cats dogs there are no cats by the way in the room today that, that's a bit of a shock uh we obviously hopefully y'all saw what indycar posted um give you just a couple of quick thoughts here it's never a bad thing when a recognized entity comes out and denounces bad things that's obvious statement alert uh george floyd died on monday the 25th nascar's statement came out on monday one week later june 1st formula one posted something on social media this morning um the second and indycar came out with something eight days after mr floyd was murdered on june 2nd so while i am again happy that they wrote something and felt compelled to post something you know timing matters right uh it felt like it was just keeping up with the joneses oh well boy we better everyone else is um 
you know. The one observation that I had that I shared with a colleague was, I just share this because it's an IndyCar show. Good on them for saying that. I don't know why they never said it before, but okay, they're saying it now, so that's good. That's great. But coming back to how I opened and closed the little monologue at the beginning of the show, for what I saw today, what I read today in that official statement, it's just words. I didn't see a thing included in it that said, and we're going to do something to actually help people. We are so compelled and motivated, and as they wrote, our hearts break for everyone that has been effective, most especially the friends, family and friends of George Floyd, talking about things need to be more inclusive, breaking down barriers, contributing towards a more inclusive and compassionate society, and so on and so forth. Again, you've read the same words, maybe placed in a different order from, you know, I mean, I was reading a statement from the head of Napa Auto Parts. Uh, you've read these things from folks that make your food, sell your cars, manufacture furniture. You know, it's... If we're going to take the time, if we're going to take eight days to say something, I would just suggest that if you want it to be more than just words, to tick the box and say that, hey, yeah, we weren't silent, we did say something. Um, If you want to do something, like, cool, announce that a donation is being made to something announce that there's going to be something do you know there's been time to try and figure out some sort of thing of action so is it indycar's responsibility to solve racism and police brutality that claims the lives of people of color 100% not no 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 It is not the responsibility of folks that sell car parts, bake cookies, right? Nobody's individual responsibility for that. It's not our government's responsibility to solve all of our ills. Our government is represented of people, of us, of human beings, of Americans, right? So, no, there's no one person. You, not, so, no, I don't look to IndyCar as a moral guide or compass. I don't think of IndyCar as an organization that would care about any one ethnicity, etc., etc. But if you're going to take the time to compose a statement and weigh in and add your name to things, knowing that, again, it's a bigger ins- bigger business and institution than quite a few. 
with some pretty considerable resources, Joseki, I would say that, you know, um, you could have actually done something more than just reconstitute the same words, kind of, sort of, that have been spoken thousands upon thousands of times over the last week. Yeah, just saying. Potential. Possibility. Have my wife and I donated money over the last week? Yeah, absolutely. I've got to admit, we're not really in a position to go peacefully protest or volunteer. Yeah, not excuses, just, you know, we don't really have the, the mobility to be able to do that. Also, with, you know, the other fight we're dealing with here, health-wise, uh, again, coincidentally, the timing doesn't really line up, but crap we're like crazy not in a place of financial security it's important to us though so i just tell you that good old marshall and chabrell pruitt who are surviving like mofos right now and cutting every corner and being as miserly as we can um, I'd tell you if we could muster up a little bit of money to try and help and at least do something to make things a little bit better, I don't know. We're like really crazy small and have no reach or influence and no resources, personnel or financially. So, yeah not saying this makes us cool or anything else i'm just saying that here we are with words um there could have been something really cool done here joe Secchi. i don't think aligning themselves with black lives matters would be the answer at least in this country as i explained to my racer colleague from england chris medland who covers formula one for us and mentioned black lives matters in a story or two without fully grasping what it was, what it is, I'm sorry, but what it was he was writing about and how it's received in this country. Um, Siding with any organization that triggers so many of IndyCar's fans like Black Lives Matters. I mean, it'd be amazing if they did it. (laughs) I'd I'd still be like just pooping myself going what again this is just looking at reactions on social media from the demographic Joseki mentions of older middle-aged white men uh, if you want to find the section of the world that hates them and thinks that they are terrorists and the worst kinds of people well yeah so that one that would have been a bit of a bridge too far uh joseki but it doesn't have to be that it can be something as simple as boys and girls club it could be something that educates it could be something that provides meals it could be something that provides rides to and from work it could be so many different things that aren't necessarily police brutality related, but just general upliftment 
of people in color who are in need. You know, there's some just really good things that could be done to help Americans who are less advantaged than others, those who are less advantaged. That's another thing, too. I've got family that looks just like me that is dirt poor and uneducated and just in a bad way. So it's not as if every person who is in need is of color. It's, again, pretty blind in that regard. But at least here, Joe Secchi, I think IndyCar teaming with Black Lives Matters would be... That might be one of the crazier developments I've ever seen. But there's so many good organizations that do so much good work in communities of color to reduce the likelihood here that that could happen. So let's go to TV coverage. I was about to say cutterage. I don't know what Cutteridge is, but coverage, sure. Um, it's a question from Dogzilla's mom from Reddit. What's up with the broadcast contracts? As I look over the schedule to decide if I need NBC Sports Gold package again, I see only the first two races uh, are to be broadcast on NBC platforms and everything else is on Sirius XM only. So what's up? Are the rest of the races also going to be on TV and NBC somehow? Are the contracts being renegotiated? Or do we simply get to hear most of the season but not necessarily see it? Uh, I have no idea where this is coming from. Um, None whatsoever. So, yeah... Uh, to my knowledge, the full season of IndyCar will indeed be presented on television. I've never heard a thing to date to suggest that IndyCar is going to be on Sirius XM only. So, uh, yeah, uh, let me go to IndyCar.com. Uh, it's just typed in IDCar, which is... That might be an interesting place to go. Um, Let's see. Let's go to things like Road America, Iowa, and other places. Okay, well, I think I see your point here. As of today, only Sirius XM is listed after the Indy race on July 4th. My guess, and I'd say it's probably a pretty educated guess, is they just haven't mapped out the exact who wears and what's on the broadcast times. Whereas with Sirius, that's not a real question. Uh, It'll be there. It's going to happen. No big deal. So, yeah, um, I just not sweat it too much might not be able to set your DVR or whatever else, if you're a DVRing type, to handle everything, um, get everything lined up months ahead. But yet, indeed, NBC Sports and IndyCar have a contract for all of their races to be broadcast. So 
uh, would just suggest that the exact start times at some of the dates, you know, as we get into July in particular, um, I'm guessing that a lot of that stuff after Indy Road Course is just still up for final um, final figuring out. So be something to check back on for sure. But no, there's been no change in contracts, and I've heard nothing about the races coming off of TV. Uh, quite the opposite. Let's go to Nathan Wolfel. MP, how much coffee do you drink over the course of an average day as I struggle to speak? Uh, how... Does that stack up with how much caffeine you consume during your pre-media racing days? Not, now, that's a great question, Nathan. I'm going to drink the rem- some of the remainder of my coffee. Well, I was quite proud of myself, Nathan. As someone who consumed probably 30 to 40 ounces of coffee a day, uh, I dialed that back a lot. And so by probably December, I was having, I don't know, maybe 20 ounces, 15 to 20 ounces a day. And that was about it. And the number, you know, really enough to where my wife was commenting on, wow, you're actually, you know, really impressing me with how much you aren't drinking. Well, that's gone out the window during the pandemic. And yeah. Probably a lot of it's due to the fact that I've been, in general, and I think a lot of folks on the media side probably as well, been working crazy hours because there's a lot of content to create and there's not a lot of stuff happening, so you really have to work to go out and find and create content compared to you know, the kind of natural stuff that happens that's easy to do. Hey, practice one report, session report, so-and-so is fastest, little sidebar in this team and the new driver and what they thought about their first day at track such and like, that's easy stuff. Uh, when none of that stuff is happening and everything has to be some sort of go out and find it and chase it and develop it, well, and you need to keep the volume of that stuff pretty darn high. Uh, to keep folks coming back, uh, I can guarantee you a lot of my brothers and sisters who do my job as well, do the same job, probably been drinking a lot of coffee. Um, then secondly, and I always feel like this stuff sounds like an excuse, but I'm, it's just what it is. Um, with our schedule at home and the trips to PT and chemo and blah, 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 and uh, multiple chemos a week and whatever else we have to do, doctor appointments, um, you know. Our days can be a little <laughs> non-linear, <laughs> um, and as I've, I think I've shared probably too many times before, the effects of chemo on my wife's body and cyst- digestive system and everything—that's um, that's the not fun part. That just turns her most of her weeks totally upside down, and so it means that. Waking up at, you know, pick the time. Waking up at 8 a.m. and going to bed at 10 p.m. Like, I don't know if that has happened since we moved in here on whatever it was, October 1st. Uh, it's often crazy hours, you know, what would be considered crazy hours. Up late or multiple interruptions or little catnaps here or could be working late. You know, yesterday with everything canceled due to the protests, uh, I said, all right, F it. 
and spent ten, I think about 14 hours here in the office cranking out about seven IndyCar stories because I realized that, oh, well, this was going to be a pretty busy day away. Now, all of a sudden, it's a gift of being home. Totally unexpected. Use it, you dummy. And so I t- did about all the almost all the stories I'd planned to do for the week in one day. So uh, guess who consumed more coffee than he should have to be alert during that yet time yesterday? Nathan. So there you go. Um, I'm hoping that once we get through this shutdown and whatever else returns to whatever we might call normal, I'm hoping the coffee consumption will go down back to where it was. And pre-media days, yeah, uh, I used to drink energy drinks. And so I had a number of those back then. So we're talking more of the aughts. Um, but I was also you know, running my own racing team and building a lot of race cars and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So it would be, you know, lots of, not necessarily all-nighters, but there were yeah, just crazy. You know, 20-hour days were pretty much the norm. And so, yeah, coffee, 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 energy drink, energy drink, uh, corn nuts for dinner. Like there were times where I had corn nuts for dinner and I, I'm not saying that with pride. I'm saying that in complete embarrassment. So, uh, I just hope that the number, the, the amount of ounces just declines, Nathan. So yeah. Hey, we're talking about my coffee consumption on the podcast. Eh, it's what we do here. Uh, my unpolished turd of a show that I appreciate that all of you help make possible. Uh, where we're going to go next, we're going to go to JJ of the Gertler Tribe. Marshall, in your interview with Zach Brown, and other recent discussions about possible seats for the team, we're not allowed to name, lest you be sued, persecuted, and maligned. Uh, one name didn't come up, Robert Wickens. He says, McLaren has been admirable in saying that there would still be a place for Robbie when he comes back, but is this still a realistic prospect when they're running two full-time cars and have a list of part-timers already in mind for next year? My brain had the same question as well, JJ, and there were a couple of things where I should have asked Zach follow-up questions, and I completely failed, and this is one of them. So Robbie and I did an interview probably three months ago, which I've yet to publish. Been wanting to wait for whatever the right time might be, and it's still not here. Um, This is one of the topics that came up. And I do know that there were definite efforts and intentions in place when Aero SPM was still a partner of Honda for there to be something collaborative with Honda to create hand controls and get Robbie into an Indy car. I know that that was something specific to Honda. In moving to Chevy, I don't know where this topic is at. And that's not a negative in any way about Chevy. I really am fond 
of the folks at Team Chevy at Elmore Engineering. I just don't know where this is at. Uh, I haven't seen them. I haven't, you know, haven't had a chance to bring this topic up if this is something they would want to get behind to make happen for Robbie. Obvious statement alert here. Robbie impressed the living poop out of Honda and looked like he was going to be a very, uh, you know, in a short window of time, a, a champion for them in IndyCar until he got hurt. Obviously, Chevy would have seen him, understood his value, but in terms of emotional attachment, a guy who was driving for them, champion in waiting, um, that wasn't something that Chevy was there for to see and feel and stir within them. That was Honda. And so in changing manufacturers, might not be a total surprise, JJ, that this isn't exactly something where you know, Chevy heard about it and said, oh, we heard that they were interested, so we're just going to take this over and do it. I've heard nothing about that uh, being the case. I wouldn't expect it to be the case. So I will need to ask and find out. I know that w- I know what was said about a car being made available, but in the conversation Robbie and I had, he, he's not wanting to wait until whatever point in the future where... Hopefully, he will have the leg strength and communication pathway to use the throttle and the brake with his feet as he did previously. The current feeling is that could be years away and there might not be a guarantee that it will happen at all. So if the making a car available proviso is limited strictly to one without hand controls, there's a question mark as to whether he'll be able to take up that offer. And so that means someone, some entity or multiple entities would need to come together, JJ, to spend the money to develop the hand controls for him to use in IndyCar. Uh, there has to be a willingness and financial commitment. Throwing this out here, I don't know the answer, but I know it occurred to me. The relationship between Arrow and Sam Schmidt and his team came from them developing a Corvette for Sam to drive using head and mouth controls. And that is where the relationship began and then developed into sponsorship and all kinds of great stuff. I ha- will admit to wondering if Arrow, the team's primary sponsor, began its relationship with the team through creating assistive controls for Sam Schmidt... I wonder if they could do such a thing for Robbie, who is not nearly as limited as Sam, who's not a quadriplegic. So knowing that Robbie only needs steering wheel-based controls, um, I don't know what this would cost, but it does seem from the outside that of all the teams in IndyCar that Robbie could be associated with, He's associated with the one that might be perfect 
to make hand controls possible so he can race again. Uh, I don't know if there's an initiative in the works there or not, but uh, boy, it, it seems like you wouldn't have to look far for the right people to help. Let's see. Kevin Kerner, a repost from last week. Continued prayers for you and your wife. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, says, I'll try and make this less wordy. I've been enjoying old YouTube races, and I'm making my way through the 1993 cart season. I have noticed something really sketchy. The situations where the safety team members are out on track during green flag conditions. One episode comes at Toronto early in the race when Ross Bentley crashed the end of the long straight. The safety team member calmly walks out into the track with the whole field still roaring towards the corner at full speed and wearing a helmet and waving yellow flags as he helps Ross out of his stricken car. He says, it seems so dangerous to me. My question is, do you know when this practice actually stopped happening? And was there ever an opinion on the paddock that this was really dangerous? Or did no one really think about it? Last questions first here, Kevin. Yeah, we kind of took things a little lax back in the day. Uh, what was it? I think it up uh, until 94 through 94. Maybe it, again, I forget the exact period where it stopped, but it took multiple deaths, including Ayrton Senna's in 94 for full speed pit lane entry and exits to no longer be acceptable and so you know we're talking a hundred miles an hour plus truly racing in and out of pit lane and yeah uh boy that wasn't great i mean it was thrilling it was scary it was terrifying but you know it's just a thing like well hey you know go as fast as you can save time uh this kind of stuff I do recall it a little bit, but not nearly as much as, as uh, I should. I just do recall there being thoughts of like, well, that's a little crazy, but, well, who wants to stop the race if you can just kind of help, you know, get the guy out of the way and maybe you can push the car out of the way. And, you know, there was not as much of a global acceptance that, oh, well, you know, stopping the race however many times you need um, that should just be done no question at all it was more of a eh, you know all right if you just jump across the track probably help the guy real quick we can kind of keep things going so i don't remember the specific ross bentley incident although i was at toronto in 93 so i probably saw it happen um yeah i don't recall the exact year where this kind of stuff stopped and that's just again my ignorance i don't know man there was just a more cavalier attitude and there's nothing like boastful about that. It just to employ Juan Montoya's favorite line. It was what it was. It is what it is. All right. Derp DeForce. Not sure. I recall your name being on a list here for the good old week in IndyCar listener Q and a, but I did uh see it early enough to where i reached out to a friend uh, on a team who might uh be able to delve in a little deeper than my recollection applies so your question what can you tell us about software in indycar i know it's a general question but hashtag me personally working in it and i believe you 
having a computer science background. I always wonder what type of off-the-shelf or in-house software they run. Bonus points for using as many technical terms and acronyms as possible. And also says, and this is weird, you're a good person and it rubs off on me. Just listen to your podcast. All the best to you and your wife. Well, uh, the police did ask me to stop rubbing on people, so I apologize for that. But uh, kidding aside, thanks. That's really unexpectedly kind thing to uh, close with. Uh, derp divorce. So... I won't tell you which friend of mine in the Indy I reach out to, but uh, I love the guy. He's 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 a blast. Uh, and so someone who, among the various things I used to do in IndyCar, one of them being a data acquisition geek, what would today be referred to as a assistant engineer, maybe even a performance engineer, I reached out to a friend who does that job now and didn't mention the acronyms or slang but let me read to you what he sent pivoting off of your question that i forwarded him off the shelf the car's cosworth electronics are run by pi toolset the log data analyzed in pool in pool pool poo in pi toolbox uh those are things by the way that i used back in the day as well so been around for a while but obviously the software has changed but uh these two are the bread and butter of the data acquisition geek, also known as the DAG. So next to that are a litany of Excel and virtual basic tools to complement these and make common tasks more efficient for all the engineers. Many race engineers use Excel and virtual basic tools they've been developing just for themselves for years. This is for higher level analyses and simulation. There are a number of packages available off the shelf that are used in the paddock. This is differing team to team. Uh, is what you're going to find in what folks use and also varying in levels of complexity and cost, such as car sim, chassis sim, optimum G, and so on, all the way up to large suites with external support from a Goliath like AVL. says these sorts of tools and their support can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. On another front, teams use various CAD, computer-aided design packages to draw parts, tools, pit equipment, fixtures, etc., and then CAM, computer-aided manufacturing software to run CNC, that's computer numerically controlled, machine tools or 3D printers, that's three-dimensional. These packages are generally expensive, again, ranging in cost and sophistication, and come from companies like Dassault, uh, SolidWorks, or Casia, Autodesk, and AutoCAD, and Inventor, or Siemens, and so forth. So in terms of in-house software, you can't really get into specifics. But every team uses some amount of programmed tools made in-house or discrete pieces of software for specific tasks, calculations, analysis, or organization, and databasing developed in any number of different languages like C++, Python, MATLAB, and so forth. Again, this is dependent on team size and how much time and resources are devoted to developing tools for specific tasks or projects. Some may outsource some of these projects. Closes by saying, hope this delights you. So there you go. Um, yeah, I love still being connected to the paddock and not being shunned for the idiot that I am. Uh, Ross Porter. Hey, Ross. How you doing, my man? Um, I might need a smoking update from you. I'm hoping to hear that you continue to be on the quit side. Uh, says, MP, I've heard Craig Hampson speak of some teams using inerters in their dampers. 
which are actually really cool after doing a little research. I was wondering if you ever heard of any teams experimenting with any type of magnetic ride control suspension. Says I didn't see anything in the rule book forbidding it other than a statement saying dampers cannot be adjusted by the driver while magnetic ride adjustment typically is commanded from an ECU. I would have to look again, Ross. I do seem to recall a pretty clear statement that no magnetic electronic type anything is allowed. Uh, it could have just it could just be wording that says it must be a uh, hydro mechanical system, uh, allowing for again obviously metal and also uh, oil. Um, no. And for the reasons I just mentioned, no. As for nerders, yes, they're very cool. Uh, but no, and I believe you'll find the same thing in all forms of IMSA and the series formerly known as World Challenge and NASCAR. And I don't know. I don't even know if it's allowed in, if magnetic ride control, electronic control is allowed in Formula One. Um, yeah. Uh, discuss this before in the podcast, where it really feels like this is an area that could be good to open up and use in relationship with auto manufacturers, right? I mean, we're talking performance and speed and control. Well, since that is something that manufacturers often market with their cars, um, particularly those manufacturers involved in motor racing, uh, this seems like an area that, you know, if you allow them to play and use this stuff in motor racing and it comes with some sort of investment in the teams that they work with, like, I don't know, that seems like road relevance, uh, developing things that do indeed feed back and improve the products you sell on the street while also benefiting the teams you work with. Uh, I love the idea of opening this up, mention it before, keep mentioning it and hoping, hoping that someone might actually listen. Uh, Tim Falkowitz, the man who puts together our questions each week, throws in an item here for you as we start to ramp down says marshall any stories from your crew member days of scrambling to get the car out for the race maybe a last minute problem on the grid or a crash in the morning warm-up where you had to thrash to uh, put the car back together for the race um the most recent one would have been 2008 with my marshall Pruitt motorsports engineering racing team and the little factory Scion endurance racing project of mine with our, I don't know, I'm not sure what class it would have been, I'm forgetting what it was, but it went quick like a bunny. And I had the car painted white and done with the All-American Racers Toyota Celica door panel and stripes and such and it was just done as a total total honoring of the uh, Celica GTU and GTO cars and one of the drivers who's a world guy who was pretty quick in world challenge Andrew Wojteszko um, who was a paying that weekend uh, barrel rolled the car in Thursday testing and so yeah so that was fun and barrel rolled it at I think possibly the highest speed portion of the track. Um, yeah. So it beat the living you-know-what out of the car. Fortunately, with how things were positioned, we had a really good 
we had an optimal pit location. And the way they line things up at Thunder Hill for that event is you load in your transporter directly behind your pit spot. So you kind of walk out the back of the trailer right onto your uh, right to the wall. And so we had ours, and it was okay, but not great. And right next to us was Greg Pickett's team. Greg Pickett, an amazing guy, local guy as well, uh, Trans Am champion, American Le Mans series, the Muscle Milk um, prototypes you might remember. Uh, Greg was there running a Daytona prototype in the race, and that's kind of redundant, but there you go. And there was a limit for the width of canopies that you could put up. And so we had this optimal space. They were would have been just on the other side, hemmed in a little bit and unable to put up their awning. And so Jeff Carter, who's now one of the senior folks at IMSA, uh, who I knew a little bit back then, we said, well, hey, um, why don't we put your peanut butter in my chocolate kind of thing? Um, if we don't set up all of our stuff here, but basically use your transporter to work out of, which is, you know, a full IndyCar, IMSA, whatever style, badass transporter, um, then you get to put out your awning and we can just use all your air and electricity and be under nice shelter and we'll just do that. So we did that. And uh, thankfully, we were in that situation, Tim, under their tent. And that allowed us to spend the rest of Thursday, all Friday morning, basically no sleep, into, heck, I don't know, man. Uh, I think we... after having been up, you know, all day Thursday, um, I think we thrashed until four something in the afternoon on Friday and qualifying. This is in December where it's really cold and it gets dark early. And so we're able to venture out for our first formative laps and qualifying. So I don't, again, I, we'd been up, <laughs> we'd been up for 40 plus hours. I think at that point, I don't know. Uh, and the car was kind of still half trash, but it was a super duct tape job. And, you know, I had some folks run in to actually drive quite a ways away towards Sacramento to a salvage yard and, you know, brought back used Scion TC Fender, and I think a gearbox, and uh, this. And th- I mean, you know, this thing was just battered or uh, the roll cage stood up was great i don't know if the frame was exactly as straight as it once was but we got that you know we did the alignment to try and counter that but you know the roof is all bashed in everything's bashed in had you know the guy from glass general or whatever drive out and like realize holy crap you want me to put a windshield on this like there's you know not a lot of straight sections for me to lay this on top of so we just asked him to do his best and uh yeah we've got the doorbell ringing here but again it's a party so we did that and that was pretty cool pretty crazy my man and we got out and i think we had a gearbox problem in the race like sunday morning but there was a bit of a i think it was a fog delay so we were able to persevere. I think we changed the gearbox during that delay. It wasn't really, it might have, I don't think it was a red flag. I don't remember, well, I don't remember the situation, man. All I know is that either we were able to work on the car or we weren't. We did. 
and were able to throw another gearbox into it and went out and I think finished third in class, fourth in class. I don't remember exactly, but the coolest part is in this race of 50, 60, 70 cars, some of them pretty fast like ours and kind of pro-ish, pro-style, and some even some that aren't. Uh, they had some form of kind of hard charger, perseverance, man, life kicked in the balls and you kept going award, and they gave it to uh, to my team. So that was so cool. And I think there was $1,000 that went with that. So uh took that 1000 and just split it among, um, you know, the 10, 12 of well, us, them. Um, and I realized it wasn't a ton, but uh, just trying to, you know, uh, I realized that, of course, I helped put back together my own car, but it's my team. I mean, you know, um, that that's not, I don't get the extra donut because I did what I was supposed to. The donuts go to the people who are there really, truly making it happen. So that was a lot of fun, uh, truly a lot of fun. I don't know why I'm blanking on um, IndyCar stories or junior open wheel stories, but yeah, I can absolutely... I know that those things happened a lot of times uh, for sure. Oh, here's one that stands out. was qualifying. It was qualifying for the 2000, uh, I think it was round one, Toyota Atlantic race at Homestead. I was there with our guy, my guy, Hoover Orsi, and our battery died um, somehow. Our battery died as he was trying to pull away to do his qualifying run. And I know this is really short and it's not a crash and it was in a short amount of time. But um, I ended up getting to an argument because I was the engineer on it, but was also kind of the guy leading the car. We had a bit of an older mechanic on the team who I don't remember his name and he hated me after this. Uh, He pretty much refused to work on the car after this. I'll admit, I, I'm sure I was totally wrong in this in this situation. But maybe coming back to the very beginning of the show about action being a thing of value, uh, the car was clearly having problems. Uh, you could hear it wasn't really wanted. He tried to pull away, and it died, and, and he's trying to refire it, and, and you could tell the battery on board was dead and or in its death throes. Um And so I'm, like, trying to get the guy to act, to go get a spare battery and install it, and we can at least try and get out towards the end of qualifying. And he's just kind of, oh, yeah, okay, all right, you know, just kind of just walking like he was going to go get a hot dog. And I'm like, dude, (laughs) We're the Atlantic Series in the Cart IndyCar Weekend, right? We're their guests. We're truly the small part of the schedule. They're, we're just the in and out series, right? Yeah, you get a little bit of time, do your thing, go qualify, then get the hell out of the way, then race and get out of the way. Like, we're, we don't have the luxury of just going for a stroll. And so I lit into him. Like, dude, you're not getting, you know, I shouldn't have to be saying this stuff. Like, this is your job. Please do it. Oh, don't tell me how to do my job. Okay. Then is there someone else I should talk to? I mean, dude, instant problem. 
need to react can be fixed swiftly and then go. <sighs> yeah, so he decided that I was a jerk and decided that he should never be told what to do or when to do his job. And he walked off the job and I think wandered back a little bit later. And it was myself and Tyler Tadovic working on the car, prepping it that evening. But um, I don't remember the exact outcome. I think we got a battery into it. Probably Tyler, who was, trust me, he was cranked up. Um, But yeah, that one, I don't know why that jumps out at me here, Tim. But yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was sad. Uh, based on the guy's reaction, I felt like I did something wrong. With hindsight, I still look at it and think, if I had been the mechanic in charge of the car and I reacted the way he did, I would have been ripped to shreds by most of the team managers or overall crew chiefs that I'd worked for in the past. So... I don't know if that makes what I did or how I said it right. I know that he reacted like I committed a cardinal sin. But yeah, um, that was just a, a weird case, Tim, of problem can be solved, act quickly and no issue, and oh Jesus, um, I'm not just sitting by and watching you treat this like it's no big deal and you'll get to it when you're in the mood. And as a result of pushing back, uh, things broke down, and we ended up having to fix it ourselves. And I don't for- remember where we qualified, uh, but I know that we, I think, finished well podium, I believe, and Dan Weldon won. Um, I don't know. Anyways, there you go. Let's go to our man Chris Hoffman. Marshall, are there any upcoming books about IndyCar or current or former IndyCar drivers? Well, two come to mind, Chris. I believe our friend and longtime announcer Paul Page has an autobiography in preparation. I believe it's been written, now looking for a publisher. And I got a note, I think it was late last week, early this maybe, must have been last week, from my pal Jade Gers, author of The Beast, uh, talking about how they are apparently getting pretty darn close to publishing the autobiography he did with John Andretti, the late John Andretti. So those are the only two that I know of here. Uh, I've heard about a PacWest racing um, book uh, that was coming from team founder Bruce McCaw when we spoke about two months ago. So if you are a fan of that kind of brief presence in the cart IndyCar series, uh, that would be one to look forward to at some point in time. And after that, I that's about all that I know, Chris. A couple more here and we're done. Phil Gaynor. Philip, how are you, brother? He says, with the loss of any lights for the season, do you think Indy Autosport will add more races for James Hinchcliffe? as a way to find work for its Indy Lights staff. He says, I know there's a busy stretch in July. Was cited for the reason, not confirmed at Toronto. So if sponsorship is found, would it be likely? Um, well, we no longer have Toronto on the schedule. So, um, 
Yeah, I don't think staffing was going to be the crazy limit. I just don't know if there was all the money there to make this happen. Um, I'm hoping to find out. Uh, uh, let's see, looking at the text here back from Andretti Autosport. Um, yeah, part of me is wanting to see if they're still doing with the conference call. Um, other than that, I don't know. I'm going to try and find out, Philip. So I apologize. I don't have an answer for you. Uh, let's go to our pal, John Ranjo, who sends in fun WWE-related items here. You know what, John? Send this back in for next week. Um, I'm just not really in the mood to uh, to play a whole bunch right now. Uh, where are we going to go for the last question here? Trip Hazard, thanks for yours as well. Um, Ryan Terpstra, he says, Robin Miller's Sim Racing article bothered me. He says, I like Robin, so I'm going to leave it at that. Um, yeah. I know that there were a number of younger folks who weren't happy or pleased or whatever you want to call it in reaction to reading Robin's I'm sick and tired of sim racing and I don't like games like that. And let's get back to real racing. And, um, yeah, I was most impressed by the reactions from folks who said, I don't agree with it, but I appreciate and understand, uh, his point of view, which is not my own. And I share the opposite view. Uh, I saw a couple, not saying you, Ryan, but I did see a couple of folks who were, you know, always really showing his age and so on and so forth and being very dismissive. And I just found it funny that young people dismissing a 70-year-old man's thoughts on sim racing, a man who, by the way, has uh, done a phenomenal amount of real racing, hurt himself, gotten injured, taken great risks, and continued racing, um would dismiss him and his views citing him due to his age uh and yet that kind of comment seems like one that could only be made due to someone's lack of age so uh yeah not everything we write makes people happy obviously uh someone who piss seems to piss people off with at least one story per week i can attest to that robin miller's been doing that for 50 years so it's kind of uh the norm for our man there um yeah uh, just a general statement here to close and that is another thing that stood out that just was re-reminded to me when Robin's sim racing article came out and had such a big reaction to it, it's that, boy, it seems like in so many ways today, news, analysis, opinion is segregated and subdivided into lanes where folks can get exactly and only the voice they want to hear. I am of this political affiliation this gender, this sexuality, this name, whatever. And I can go to a website each day or a news source and they tailor what they offer to only fit 
that narrow lane of the thing I want to see and hear and believe. And again, not speaking about you, Ryan, or anyone specifically that's listening, but the thing that did jump out was like, it's become so normal for this hyper silo based news thing these days that it was just, it was interesting seeing the reactions to the piece from some folks who were really pissed off and really, it seemed like intimating or showing that they're accustomed to only getting the news they want to read. And when someone maybe on a site, they like going to post something that totally doesn't fit the, what I want to see, what I hear, what I, what I think model big reaction to it just ill-fitting news this thing being said doesn't fit the thing that i want to hear and i know that's just a, a generalization but yeah i found that to be fascinating it just spoke to the times we're in where dial the clock back to hopefully not too many years ago when it was just totally normal and expected that you were going to be reading things that you really disagreed with and really agreed with, and it was all normal and all expected, and it was not biased in any one direction. So I think I also just mentioned a band name, One Direction. So there you go. So, yeah, that's what we got for the week. I thank you for sending stuff in. Uh, I hope if you only wanted to hear the listener Q&A, you use the timestamp. Uh, sometimes I use my show here to just talk it out. And for those that wanted to hear it, thank you. Those who tolerated it, thank you. For those who didn't, thank you as well. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. I'm going to speak to you next week most likely after the first IndyCar race of the year has been held, we're going to have some real stuff to talk about.